皆さん、こんにちは。メルティンジャパンのエリオットです。第2話へようこそ。あの肌寒いクリスマスイーブの朝ですね。まあ、僕はクリスマスイーブって言うけど、えー、今日は天皇陛下の誕生日の振り返り記述で、日本人はクリスマスイーブとは違う理由で休んでますね。ちなみにクリスマスの季節なので、このバーを使って言いますけど、僕はよく日本人からアメリカのクリスマスについて聞かれることが多いんですね。でほとんどの場合はその日本の習慣を前提に質問してくるんですね。というのもクリスマスケーキとかケンタッキーを食べますかって言ったような質問は日本人からよく出てきてで日本人からするとそれはおかしくないかもしれないんですけど。えー、これらが日本のクリスマス文化なので欧米からの外国人には通用しないんですね日本では11月からクリスマスケーキの宣伝が始まりますがこれはきっと日本発祥のものじゃないかと思っていて少なくとも56年前に初めてクリスマスケーキについて聞いた時には「え何それ?」っていう印象が未だに残ってますねそしてもう一つあのクリスマスとは関係ないんですけど僕の本業ですねあのグローバル愛知はウェッジ氏の12月号の特集に取り上げられておりあの留学生の就職支援や今後の外国人労働者についてはかなり細かく書かれていますでまだ読んでない方々にはぜひおすすめしますし確か500円ぐらいで買えると思いますので新幹線のグリーン車に乗らなくてもあの読まない言い訳がないんですねなのでぜひぜひ読んでみてくださいでえー、っと今回のポッドキャストに入りたいと思うんですけども、えー、第2話のゲストはアラスター・ゲールさんですでアラスターは東京でウォール・ストリート・ジャーナル C の日本編集委員ですでジャーナリストだけあって話がやっぱり非常に面白いんですねあのアラスターはイギリス生まれ育ち1993年に初めて来日していますが現職に至るまではシンガポールと韓国にもそれぞれ5年以上住んでいますでその意味でアラスターはですね日本を日本列島だけじゃなくてアジアそして全世界の目線で日本の現状や立場を捉えることができて、まあ、高い次元でですね高い視線で、えー、日本の時事問題について語ることができる、まあ、面白い方ですねで個人的な意見ですけれども、まあ、そういった能力を持った、えー、方々が日本のメディアには非常に不足してるんじゃないかという印象がやはり強いんですね。で昨日は渋谷で録音しましたがものすごく話,話し込んでいてかなり長く、まあ、続いたんですねなので今回は前半だけにしておいてアラスターさんの自己紹介を兼ねて彼が日本とは全く無縁のイギリスでの生活からどのように大手町にある事務所に通うようになったのか、えー、に集中的に。あの話してについて集中的に話してますでは皆さんあの英語にはなりますけど国際色豊かで鋭い目線を持っているアラスターさんのお話に耳を楽しみに傾けてください
<clears throat> How's it going, everyone? Welcome to Made It in Japan, episode two of the podcast. This is your host, Elliot Conti. And it's a chilly Christmas Eve morning here in Nagoya. And it is actually being treated as a national holiday, December 24th. Not because of Christmas, Christmas Eve, but because yesterday was the Emperor's birthday. And since we're on the subject of Christmas, I'll actually take this opportunity to share with the non Japanese listeners the two main things that are eaten on Christmas here in Japan. And the first is Christmas cake, which Japanese people all believe actually exists in Western countries. And the second, which is actually even more ridiculous, is KFC. And yes, that does stand for Kentucky Fried Chicken over here as well. And for whatever reason, which is totally beyond me, Japanese people associate Christmas with eating Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I actually get asked about this quite often. Do Americans enjoy their fried chicken on Christmas? <laughs> um, and over the, the six years that I've lived here, I've actually given up trying to solve why, why that is in the first place. Um, also, one more note before we get going is that Global Aichi, the nonprofit that I manage in Nagoya, was covered in a national magazine called Wedge、uh, in its December issue. And they covered the current state of international students here in Japan and how our organization helps support their employment and lifestyle. And we're very grateful for the notoriety and are very hopeful、uh, looking forward. So, today's guest on the podcast is Alistair Gale.、Uh, he's from the UK and he's now an editor at the Wall Street Journal in Tokyo. And Alistair's an interesting guy,、uh, not only because his position puts him on the front lines of journalism here in Japan, <clears throat> but also because he has taken quite a unique route to get where he is today,、uh, including five year stints in both Singapore and South Korea. And especially his experience in South Korea and reporting there has given him a, a nuanced perspective on North Korea, which you don't often hear in Western countries. And we discussed that a little bit today.、Uh, so, this conversation, which was recorded yesterday in downtown Tokyo,、uh, was quite long. So, I've decided to divide the podcast into two separate parts. And part one, which you are listening to now, Gives a detailed introduction to Alistair's background and how he managed to come from a former existence in the UK that had absolutely no relationship with Japan to settling down here and fighting the journalistic fight. So, I plan to put up part two later in the week, but for now, I hope you enjoy getting to know Alistair Gale and learning a bit about international journalism in Asia. Thank you. Strange for you to be on the receiving side of the question. As a journalist, I feel like you're most often asking questions rather than answering. That is true. You know,、um, there is a phenomenon here in Japan, and I think it's you know, something you see, particularly around Asia, of、uh, when the local press get、mm. interested in what the foreign press、yeah. uh, think and are reporting on things. And,、uh, Yeah, it's quite interesting right now.、Mm. Uh, and I think we're going to talk about this a bit later, but the,、sure. the situation with、uh, the arrest and detention of Carlos Ghosn at Nissan,、yeah. um, a huge story. There's you know, lots of media recovering it.、Um, but it's very hard to get 
anything new to say a lot of the time. So, you know, uh, there is some degree of information coming from prosecutors, some degree of information coming from places like his family, but it's, you know, there's not a whole lot out there. So Mm. what you sometimes find is the, the local press will run out of things to report. And so they'll start reporting on what the foreign press is saying. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we had this funny situation on, um, I guess it's on Friday, where one of my colleagues went to the detention center where Carl's mm. going to stay. Right. And he actually went inside and, um, you know, tried to go meet him, uh, which didn't work, you know. Yeah, I imagine. You know, he's <laughs> pretty tight security or something. Yeah, pretty tight security. So they, they you know, essentially kicked him out. And... Um, <laughs> As he came out, yeah. he was surrounded by local press. You know, he's an American guy, mm. uh, and the local press thought, well, maybe this is like a friend of Carlos uh, Gunn or, or one of his legal team or something like that. Yeah. So uh, he got sort of bombarded with questions, and suddenly he became you know, <laughs> the focus of attention of the media. So yeah. this does happen that, you know, sometimes you get asked questions, but it tends to be when the local press run out of things to say that right. are actually new about the story. Right, right. Because this, because this particular, um, you know, situation with Goan is, you know, it's got international Attention, repercussions yeah. and, you know, things have been said by mm. French government mm. and, you know, it's got, like, nationality, I think, in three different countries. Yeah. Maybe more. Um, you know, they're very conscious of what the, you mm. know, the rest of the world thinks about this. I mean, you've, probably experience this, you know, what, when Japanese people ask you, what do people in your country think about, you know, Trump? Or Trump, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, yeah. Or, that's the question or, I get the most. Yeah. Well, they certainly, yeah, that's 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 a question we get a lot. Um, yeah. And for you more, so when they ask you about what you and what your people of your, you know, nationality think about mm. something in Japan. Oh, okay. You know, because yeah. they're yeah. sort of concerned about right, seeing right, outside right. the country. Anyway, that's, yeah, a, yeah. that's a long way of answering well, a question. You know, they are, once they realized that he wasn't, you know, connected with Carlos Ghosn, he was actually a journalist, you know, they asked him, yeah. um, what's your view of Carlos Ghosn being detained for so long? Because he's, we now know that he's going to be detained until at least January the 1st. Through the New Year, yeah. Through the New Year. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's an interesting situation to be in, Um well, for him, of course, and it's not a, not, a, not a great situation. But yeah, as a journalist, when you're asked by local journalists about an issue, um, you know, we have a very sort of hard rule of mm. you can't give your opinions on things. Right, right. Um, you just have to sort of uh, state, you know, things that are objective facts or right. tell uh, the person that's asking you uh, the question something that we have reported. Yeah. Um, just so that we, you know, don't, um, get accused of bias, um, sure, sure, so that we can just continue to do our jobs uh, in a you know fair and objective way. So he, you know, he said, uh, "Well, the view from places like the US is that he seems to be in detention for a long time, right. and he doesn't have access to a lawyer during the questioning mm. um, periods, and he has limited access to see his family. I think he actually hasn't seen his family. Yeah. So we just state that and say that's surprising." You know, when you come from a right. uh, a country where those things would be, um, you know, off, would be, uh, you, you'd be able to talk to your lawyer. Yeah, sure, sure. So he he just relayed that, and that's that's kind of good enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, as you mentioned, professional journalism. Um, you work at the Wall Street Journal. You're an editor. You're writer and editor here in Tokyo. So, which came first for you? 
um, Tokyo or the Wall Street Journal? How did that How did that play out? Right. Um, well, Tokyo came first for me. Mm. Um, should I give you the sort of yeah, yeah, the, the like, story? Of, I'm interested. Yeah. Um, so I first came to Japan in 1993. Uh, 25, man. Yeah, 25 years ago. Okay, it's wow, a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, this was just after the um, end of the bubble, basically. Sure. So um, you know, that sort of really dates it. Uh, anyway, I came on the Jet program. The English, oh, really? English teaching program okay. uh, that still sends native speakers out to junior high schools and high schools. Mm. Uh, and I just graduated from university and I wanted to do, all I really wanted to do was to be as far away from the UK as possible, which is where I was born and raised. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to sort of travel and see the world. Sure. And I'd studied philosophy and mathematics in university, which... Uh, you know, the career paths, um, the obvious <laughs> career paths from that are essentially become an accountant or become right. an academic or a teacher. Right. Um, and I didn't really sort of know what uh, I wanted to do longer term. So I thought, well, I'll give teaching a shot. Um, and the JET program sounded great. And it was great. Um, so I spent two years in Totori. Yeah, sure. But so did you have any interest in Japan prior to that? Or was it just the fact that it was far away from the UK? That appealed to you? Yeah, not really. Um, no. You know, I remember uh, preparing for my interview for the JET program, and I was thinking, okay, what do I... How am I going to say You have to show some interest in Japan. <laughs> and, you know, I've been involved in some animal rights uh, organizations okay. in uh, university. Okay. So um, I brought up the uh, the issue of whaling in the interview. and uh, mm. Or maybe they brought it up. I think I'd written down in my application that I was interested in that. Obviously, I'm not going to say I'm going to go to Japan and start protesting about Japan <laughs> whaling. I said I'm interested in learning, what, you know, their cultural mm. um, story and why that's uh, something that goes on there. Yeah. Um, I had studied a little bit of Zen Buddhism in my philosophy course, you know, a very minor part of what I did. So uh, I dredged that up uh, yeah. for the interview. <laughs> but other than that, no. I mean, I I actually wanted to go to South America. I was sort of quite interested in Hispanic cultures. Mm. Uh, but uh, while I was still at university, the, there was a presentation on this, uh, the, the JET program from the Japanese Education Ministry, and right. that seemed like a great offer. It's a good deal. It's yeah. a great deal, yeah. yeah. Um, and did that for two years, and I, you know, I've always said that I think one of the, what the JET program, one of the great sort of things that the JET program does is, as much as it may or may not you know, help kids with English language training, and I think it does to some extent, um, <laughs> depending on where you are and, you know, different right. experiences in different places. Sure. It, it kind of creates um, a real attachment to Japan at a fairly young age for, mm. for a, you know, fairly large cohort of, of Westerners. Right. And I think now, um, you know, my, I'm now in journalism, and I know I can think of at least six people who are in, uh, still in journalism in, in Japan, uh, mm. who started on the JET program. Those are senior people at some of the other major major news organisations. So it really? creates a sort of bond um, at an early stage for people with Japan, and that's certainly what it did with me because really? I did I did that for two years, and I knew that you know the teaching thing was not what I wanted to do longer term. Right. But I because I lived in Totori, very rural. Yeah. Um, and it's a beautiful part of Japan, but there's mm. not a whole lot to do there. Mm. Um, you know, I studied the language. Right. Uh, I actually 
did go to uh, a Zen temple for meditation most weeks on Saturday nights. Wow, that's, um, that's some serious dedication. Yeah, so, well, I, you know, I would uh, caveat that with I did also go out drinking afterwards, so it's, oh, not, okay. like, it's not like I lived the life of a monk or something. Yeah. Um, you know, and um, <laughs> young in my 20s, and we all had some fun as well, but, sure. uh, uh, you know, uh, so, I, so I did meditation, I learned a language, and I feel that that sort of um, gave me a really good sort of foundation for appreciating Japan and wanting mm. to sort of spend more time here. But I knew that the JET program was, you know, well, it has a, it has know, yeah. has a, has a um, yeah. you know, fixed period of time that you can do it. Right. Um, so I, in the end, I ended up going back to the UK um, mm. and sort of in my mind was to like look for something else in Japan, but I didn't have anything at the end of the JET program to sort of transition transition into straight away. Right. Move back to the UK, spend six months there, mm. um, and did a sort of few jobs that weren't um, didn't have sort of long term prospects. Mm. Uh, ended up coming back to Japan and working for a steel company, uh, Nihon Kōkan, okay. which is now part of JFE Holdings. Okay. Um, so they were NKK and they got um, merged with Kawasaki Steel and that became JFE Holdings. And I was again teaching um, to mm. the steel workers as well as helping with some of the corporate communications okay. and doing things like, you know, proofreading letters from <laughs> officials and things like that. Right, right. And uh, lived in uh, Fukushima, uh, Fukuyama, <laughs> uh, in Hiroshima Prefecture in uh, Fukuyama, which has a big steel plant in the... Okay the east of Hiroshima Prefecture. Um, and that was my way back into Japan. And mm. the, Is that 95? So that would be 96, mm. early 96. Um, and I spent a year in Fukuyama, and then mm. they have an office in uh, Tokyo. So I moved to Tokyo. And I was actually working out of the Kawasaki steel plant, doing yeah. the same kind of thing. Uh, and again, that that was didn't have long long term prospects, mm. but uh, brought me back to Japan. Right, I got some experience sort of uh, working with the communication stuff. Um, you know, was writing press releases, that kind of thing, was mm. part of that job. So that gave me a little bit of experience in sort of writing. Mm. Um, and after I finished that, because that was a fixed term, um, that was when I. I didn't really intend to go into journalism, but there was a, a vacancy at uh, Dow Jones Newswires, which is the real-time news service um, that's a sort of sister part of the operation of the Wall Street Journal. Mm. So if you think of the Wall Street Journal as the newspaper, <coughs> excuse me, mm. um, Dow Jones Newswires is the sort of electronic side of things which focuses on um, the market, the stock market, mm. currency market, um, corporate news, right. things like that. Uh, and they were looking for uh, copy editors, hmm. uh, so they took me on, and they, you know, I sort of leveraged this sort of very limited experience I had <laughs> editing and writing for the steel company yeah. to get into to, to journalism. Although I was not actually writing stories myself, I was editing other people's right. stories about the financial markets, um, and that was a very steep learning curve. Mm. Um, that was. I joined in February '99, uh, and um, you know, I had really very limited knowledge of financial markets and terminology that you need for 
yeah. uh, writing about those kind of things. Um, but it was very interesting. It was an mm. interesting time. There was I remember there's you know quite a few like bankruptcies around then because the bubble okay. voluntary burst. Yeah, late nineties. Yeah. Late nineties. Um, the biggest one I remember was um, Sogol, the department store. Um, when that went bust, um, you know, we had some late nights dealing with sort of big uh, stories. And it looked like the Japanese economy was just going to, you know, go into sort of terminal decline yeah. at that point. So it was really interesting to be involved in, mm. you know, covering that. Although, as I say, I was taking stories from other people, editing them, you know, and, and um, suggesting things that they could add, take away, right. and in context and things like that. Um, so I did that. Uh, until 2004, mm. and then I was offered a job in Singapore with Dow Jones Newswire's uh, Asia headquarters, which mm. is in Singapore, to run the editing operations for all of Asia. Wow! Um, I'd actually worked my way up in Tokyo to the to run the head of the editing. I became the head of the editing desk. Just mm. only four people, um, <laughs> but uh, there was an opportunity to go and work in Singapore and to run the Asia. Editing desk. Much larger operation. Much larger operation. Yeah. We had about um, 30 people in Singapore as well as editors here in Tokyo. Right. Um, a group in Sydney uh, and some in, in Delhi as well. Um, so covering the whole of Asia from essentially from um, India through to New Zealand. Right. Uh, so that was fun and um, uh, I did that for. Uh, six years. Singapore's mm. a great place. Um, and I've never been. Oh, you should. It's. Um, yeah. I mean, it, you know, I, can't, I. I sort of feel like I've done my career in the wrong order. The places I've lived because Singapore's a very sort of laid back place where it's nice to kind of drink cocktails around the pool. <laughs> yeah. You know, the weather's always good, and I feel like that's something you kind of should do when you're maybe older. A bit later. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> like Tokyo and you know Japan and other places. Have more of a buzz to them, and uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, I mean, I obviously came to Japan first, um, but I, you know, feel like I should be going to Singapore in another ten years or something. Like that. Anyway, <laughs> um, Singapore was fun. Did that for six years, and then uh, that was the point where I really transitioned more into um, doing writing because I mm. took the opportunity to, uh, uh, well, I was offered the opportunity to work in our sole office as the bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. Um, and we, at that time, the company was integrating mm. the Newswire's operation and the newspaper operation, the Wall Street yeah. Journal. And they had a need in Seoul to have someone running the office mm. and being one of the main writers about the stories there. Uh, that was very appealing because, you know, um, you know, it's two big stories in South Korea, essentially. North Korea, mm. uh, what's going on there, as well as the tech story in South Korea, Samsung. Mm. In the sure, name, sure. obviously LG. Um, you know, and there's autos as well with Hyundai. There's a, yeah. you know, there's an economic story in uh, right. South Korea that has, um, you know, global significance. Right. So that was a great opportunity, and, mm. and um, my wife and I moved to Seoul in mm. 2011, uh, and we stayed there until the end of 2016. So I was. Oh right, really? Wow. Yeah. So we we were there for almost six years. Um, I was. You know, writing stories about um, things like when Kim Jong Il died, mm. the father of the current ruler of North Korea. Right. Um, that was uh, probably the biggest story that we did while I was there. Um, you know, Samsung um, going 
kind of from strength to strength, and then sort of having some stumbles along the way. Sure. Particularly in the sort of smartphone. Phones exploding. In the phones game. exploding. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was a great story. Um, you know, Samsung is a fascinating company because mm. they they have such a great business model. You know, when one part of their business is not going well, they always have something else which can pick up the slack. So people, when they think of Samsung, they always think of phones, right? I and mean, right. this is sort of the one that um, you know you carry around, you sort of see all the time. Sure. Um, but there's obviously electrical appliances, things like fridges, microwaves, whatever. But the the thing that Samsung Samsung has you know uh, made its most most of its money on is semiconductors. Mm. And when the semiconductor business went into a downturn, the phone business took off. And then when the phone business kind of mm you know, lost momentum, the semiconductor business came back. So right, they've, right. they've managed to do very well. Um, you know, they've had uh, problems with, uh, you know, their management, the uh, the current acting uh, head of the company, the, the guy who's still the chairman of, of Samsung has been in a coma for about, it's been about <laughs> four years now. Um, really? Wow, and, I didn't yeah, know that. Uh, his son is running the company, but then he was... You may remember he was arrested a few years ago and found guilty of corruption. Um, you know, at the same time the South Korean president was put in jail. So that was bizarre too. Man. That was wow. that was crazy <laughs> stuff. I was kind yeah, of yeah, you you had a field day over there. Well, you know, it's it's the kind of thing as a journalist that mm. you love to have those big stories because um, you know that gets you on the front page and that gets yeah. a lot of readers and it gets you noticed. Um, that's what you live for. Um, right, right. It's also exhausting because, you know, it's relentless, um, particularly with, you know, we had, you know, both the South Korean president being impeached and eventually mm. arrested and uh, jailed, you know, kind of transitioning into North Korea going nuts with missile and nuclear right, development right. around, you know, around the same time. So you have two very big stories, mm. uh, which just meant that the, you know, we have an office, we have an office of six people in in Seoul, but it's around the clock, you know, you you just don't really have a break. Right, so, right. Um, you know, you get the buzz and you're sort of running on adrenaline a lot and it's a fun story to cover, but yeah. you, know, you can forget about weekends and time yeah. off and things like that. So it's exhausting, yeah? It's exhausting. Sure. So, were you covering were you covering Japan at all when you are in Seoul? No. I mean, entirely I, the Korean Peninsula? Yeah, <laughs> with a few exceptions. I mean, when... Um, uh, when Japan-related issues happened, such as in 2015, when there was an agreement between Korea and Japan over uh, the so-called comfort women, right. um, that was a story that I was involved in. Um, I also did a story about um, uh, the um, uh, forced labour issue, um, which okay. is back in the news yeah. right now. And, yeah, it is. Um, and I went to down to Nag- I flew over to Nagasaki. I went to Gunkanjima. Mm. Do you know that? Yeah, it's, the, it's the island that sort of was in one of the James Bond films. Yeah. Um, fascinating place. Yeah. And use that as a kind of uh, jumping off point to do a story about um, forced labor and sort of bad relations between mm. Korea and Japan. Um, and I think that was around the time that Japan had registered with UNESCO for those, for, for Kajima, Kajima, yeah, yeah. and other places in the area right. to be um, World Heritage sites. There's an yeah. And there was yeah. there was a, there was some sort of controversy because um, you know I think uh, Japan had to agree to put up a sign in Gunkanjima saying mm. you know it would 
of people that were forced to work here right. uh, and acknowledged the sort of dark side of the history there. I'm not sure if they ever did that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so I would I would do I would have some involvement with Japan if there was a, a story that was sort of related to Japan that was you know career stuff. Oh. Um, so yeah, uh, and so I did. I was in Korea for six years. Yeah, and then I decided I needed to change again because I was kind of burnt out. You know, the mm. round the clock news coverage um, was um, kind of relentless. And also as a journalist, you know, it's good to change, uh, you know, regularly so that you still have the kind of enthusiasm for stories, sure. uh, the drive to to get them and to pursue them. Um, you know, it's quite easy to get very cynical about um, things like North Korea. I get very cynical about mm. cynical about because um, you know there's always great excitement about are we going to have a war? Right. Is are they going to collapse? Are they going to invade South Korea? Are they going to mm. attack Japan? And of course, none of these things have happened, right. um, at least since you know since the 1940s. Uh, and you know, but, but there's always this feeling that you're on the edge. It sure. might happen. And, you know, my view on North Korea, or the, the, the view that I formed after several years of sort of trying to understand it and write news stories about it was mm. essentially um, it, it has a, um, a pretty low risk tolerance. It, do, it actually doesn't want a war itself. Right. You know, the, the leadership, its primary goal is to stay in power. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wants to um, get a peace treaty with the U.S. and it wants to build up a nuclear um, arsenal so that uh, it can deter the US uh, sure, or anyone else. Can protect itself. Can protect itself. So I, you know, I, you know, the kind of excitement that oh my god, you know, we're going to have a war with North Korea all the time. I think it's kind of overblown. So right. I got cynical about that, and mm. I decided that look, I've got to do something new. And you know, I was kind of thinking of going to China because you know China is a huge news story, particularly for an economic economically yeah, focused yeah, newspaper yeah. like the journal. Um, and you know, quite honestly, most of the you know the vacancies in the company for jobs in Asia, I knew I wanted to stay in Asia because mm. you know, I like being here. Um, my wife likes being here. Um, Your wife is not Asian? She's Japanese. Oh is she? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you guys met when you were work when you were in Tottori or Tokyo? No, it, yeah, we met uh, when I was after I'd moved to Tokyo, we met in ninety eight. Okay. Uh, I was living here, and um, she. We got married before we went to before we went to Singapore. Mm. So she loved living in Singapore. She loved mm. living in, in Korea, mm. and she was quite keen to go somewhere new. And we talked about China, and right. you know, China, you know, is a big, an interesting news story. It's also a very polluted country, and sure. you know, a tough place to be as a journalist. But I mm. figured, you know, it's one of those things that you know you should do at some point. Um, but funnily enough, I was told by uh, some of my bosses that they actually needed people here in Japan mm. because there'd been um, some people working in the Tokyo office, in fact, three or four people who'd moved on mm. around that time. This was like the end of 2011. Sorry, the end of 2016. Uh, and Labor shortage. Yeah. Labor shortage in Japan. There you go. What a surprise. Yeah. yeah. So they got to fill that with uh, foreign workers. Um, yeah. Uh, so they said, well, you know, would you consider coming back to Japan? And I thought, oh, I don't really want to do that. You know, I want to do something really? new. And then, you know, but then I thought, 
um, actually, because my experience in Japan had really been editing other people's news stories, right. you know, not doing any writing, um, coming back, back to Japan would give me an opportunity to sort of do something I hadn't done here before. Mm. And, you know, the more I thought about this, the more I became convinced it was a, the right move because uh, one of my frustrations in Korea was not learning the language to a sort of sufficient degree to able to be able to go out and report and mm. interview people mm. without having someone interpret for me. But I could interview people in, in Japan, in Japanese. Right. Uh, my, you know, uh, my Japanese is still not far from um, you know, perfect, but uh, I can you know, actually so communicate, yeah. communicate in Japanese. Mm. Uh, so I thought, look, this is a chance to go and you know, uh, write some stories about a country that um, I've you know, spent a fair amount of time in, go back and see how things have changed. Mm. Uh, and you know, mm. I negotiated internally to get a job where I had a degree of freedom to do the stories that I wanted to do. I mean, right. You know, when you're in a big media organisation, there's always limitations. You know, there's always requests and ultimately, you know, demands from senior people that you have to write about, you know, X sure. or Y. Um, and that's you know, that's that's part of the job. You do have to do that. Um, and when mm. news breaks, you do have to cover it. But I've had um, you know, a great opportunity here to just sort of, you know, go after things that I find interesting. Right. Um, I've done quite a few stories um, like that, that uh, uh, where I've just had the freedom, which is quite rare in media these days, and it's not mm. a growing industry, although uh, Trump has um, been helpful in uh, creating, you know, more interest in, in the media and getting more people to you know, pay for media, so right. you have to give them credit for that. <laughs> um, and so, you know, but ultimately, you know, media is not a, uh, um, you know, at some point, physical newspapers will go away, sure. and media companies don't have a great amount of resources. So being able to kind of go after stories that I'm interested in, it's been, I feel very lucky that I've had that, mm. um, to work for a company that gives you the time to, you know, travel around, um, you know, I just recently was in Macau to research. Uh, it's actually a North Korea-related story. Um, really? You know, I can take a week there and just, I don't have to come up with a story instantly from, mm. from that trip. I right. do have to come up with things eventually. Sure, sure. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, traveling, actually, uh, in Malaysia as well, because one of the stories that I got involved in was the killing of the uh, half-brother of, North Korea, Kim Jong Un, mm. last year, um, you know, because I have knowledge of North Korea. So I, right, right. that's obviously not Japan related, um, but Japan stories as well. I've been able to travel around and do things like go up to Aomori and I did a story about curling um, <laughs> around the time of the Winter Olympics. Actually, yeah. it, actually, that was a that was a Japan Korea story. Yeah, you really must have some leeway if they're letting you write about curling. Well, the story, the story, <laughs> the story was um, about uh, strawberries, actually, because I don't know if you recall this, but the Japanese curling team mm. um, have these, or I assume they still do, have these snack breaks during during matches. Okay. And uh, it was noticed that they during the snack breaks when they were um, playing the the, the World Cup, uh, sorry, the, the, the Winter Olympics in Korea, in Pyeongchang, yeah. earlier this year, yeah. they were eating strawberries. <laughs> and this became quite controversial because they were eating Korean strawberries. 
And yeah. there was actually there was actually a um, the agriculture minister here protested. Mm. I don't know if protest is the right word, but certainly highlighted the fact that Japanese strawberries um, <laughs> are superior superior to Korean <laughs> strawberries. And then the one of the like the big agricultural you know cooperative mm. uh, got involved and said actually Korean strawberries are um, derived from Japanese strawberries and they stole our intellectual property. <laughs> so this became very interesting because we, I just went down this rabbit hole yeah. on how much Korean strawberries actually come from the, <laughs> the DNA of Japanese strawberries and it turns out they pretty much do. So, oh, really? so, wow. so what happened was the, the Japanese curling team got sucked into this diplomatic you know, not you know, low-level dispute where the Japanese were saying, um, you know, you've basically ripped off our strawberries, and the Koreans are saying, no, 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 those ones that you know came from Japan, we've now produced our own species. Mm. Uh, and what happened was the the reason I went to Aomori was because the Cohen team were doing a they were actually in a tournament, but at the start of the tournament they did a big promotional event for Japanese strawberries <laughs> because they wanted to show that they were. You know, supporting the home team. Yeah, yeah. So that was pretty interesting. So I wrote a story about this, and we do, <laughs> um, we do these front page stories, um, which are kind of supposed to give people a bit of light relief. Um, mm. There's one every day in the print, US print edition of the journal, um, and you know they're meant to be about sort of weird things that happen. I think the one today was about guys who put Christmas de decorations in their beards. So you get, you get an idea of the craziness of, uh, sure. of these stories, and that was one of them. Um, anyway, so you know, I can spend I can spend a week, yeah, uh, just researching, uh, you know, the genetic strains of, of strawberries in Korea and Japan. Yeah, you know, so I, I'm very grateful for being able to do that. I feel I'm lucky that I've got a position where um, you know I have that freedom. So anyway, mm. that that was kind of the reason I came back to Japan was that. Um, you know, I, I I got I came around to thinking it would be a good idea, and it has been it has worked out well. Mm. Um, I still get sucked into you know the North Korea story because there's so much interest in it. So sure. I do travel to Korea quite a lot, um, mm. South Korea, um, and do some reporting on that and go to other places like Macau. But yeah, um, that's the very long version of yeah, yeah. how I got into sort of writing about Japan. Journalism in general. はい、皆さんお疲れ様でございます。ご清聴ありがとうございました。えー、冒頭でも説明しましたが、今回聞いてくださったのパート1ですねで。このパート1はあくまでも背景で、アラスタさんの経歴を紹介しました。パート2は最近の美味しい話題を中心にあのカーロス・ゴーン氏のドラマだとか外国人労働者と今回の、えー、と改正法案について話してますなので今回のイントロを面白く聞いてくださった方々は、まあ、パート2も必聴ですねできれば26日にあげたいと思うんですけど年末のバタバタもあるので、えーまあ、年内に必ずアップするっていうことにしておきましょうか、えー、聞いていただきいただきありがとうございます、えー、良い一日をお過ごしください So thanks for listening to part one of this two-part podcast 
In the second part, we get into major issues facing the Japanese media today, uh, especially uh, the chairman or the former chairman of Nissan, Mr. Carlos Ghosn, and also immigration here in Japan. So for those of you who have enjoyed the discussion thus far, part two is really where the rubber hits the road. And I will do my best to get part two up as soon as possible. And it shouldn't take too long. Uh, so just sit tight for a few days. And thanks again for listening. And I'll be back soon.